podcast. I'm Alex, one half of the Sober Experiment. And I'm Lisa, the other half of the Sober Experiment. Oh my God, you actually said it really quickly. <laughs> Usually I have to edit all that because there's a massive gap there where Lisa has to think about who she is. It's not even a massive gap. It's like a breath. <laughs> it's a massive breath. <laughs> so today we've got Lisa Smith, the author of A um, Girl Walks Out of a Bar, coming on. And it got me thinking about addiction versus problematic drinking and is there a difference um is there a different method for achieving sobriety and what are our reasons for that um and i've done quite a lot of thinking about this in honesty and i've decided that it is quite different i think it's very different yeah and i think that everybody is somewhere, I say this all the time, don't I? I'm probably becoming a bit boring to you if I've not already been boring forever, but I say this all the time that you're on somewhere on that scale, you either don't drink at all, unfortunately there's the label alcoholic, which we don't like, Yeah. and you're a you know, stereotypical alcoholic, Yeah. or you're somewhere on that scale, whether that be you believe you are a moderate drinker, you are a safe drinker, you are a problematic drinker, you are a alcoholic however you identify that it is up to you and I got thinking about well if there's different kind of labels for it then surely different methods of either recovery or sobriety depending how you identify must be possible and must be achievable definitely I think it's a really touchy subject people get a little bit miffed with labels like why do we have to label everything we shouldn't have to, should we? No, we shouldn't. And I think they do. I know, if you you know, how we talk about sobriety and we're, we've always said that we're advocates for living positively in sobriety. Yeah. We've never really said um, anything about addiction as such, have we? No, or, not really. But because alcohol is addictive... That's what I mean. This is where it gets all It gets bad. confused. Are we, are we addicts? <laughs> but then... We must have been addicted because it's not easy to stop. Well, that's what I mean. We say, if you go out for two drinks, or you say you're going out for two drinks, and then you don't, you end up out all night, which is quite often what I would do, then why is that? Is that because it's addictive after two drinks? Is it because I was addicted because I went out in the first place? Yeah. Like, what? what is it? I don't know. I really don't know. All I know is... Well, all I know is not all I know. But what I know about this subject, from my perspective, is that I think sometimes people think, well, and I've said this before, if you look at all my friends, all my family from the dawn of time, they may not have... um, I may not have been the person that they would have thought needed, and I say that kind of um, with inverted commas, needed to stop drinking. There's, there's many more people who I know in my environment who have a bigger need to stop drinking than I did. Yeah. And that's because I wasn't typically what you would describe as the stereotypical alcoholic. Do you know what I mean? But why does that mean that I can't choose a sober lifestyle? And why does it mean that my journey is any less valid than somebody who's struggled through addiction and recovery? Well, it doesn't. You know, um, I know my husband won't mind me saying this, but he went to AA and has stopped drinking through going to AA and we've gone through very different journeys but he tells a story (laughs) it's quite funny actually but he was in an AA meeting and somebody told him that he wasn't an alcoholic and he was like yeah yeah." and he was like yeah I am and they they had a bit of a to-do right and he was like no no you didn't drink enough to be an alcoholic and he was like yeah I did I am an alcoholic (laughs) it took him like all this time to say it and there was like a big relief when he finally did realize that alcohol was taking a lot more than he was ever getting from it but yeah he had a big to-do that he was an alcoholic but had he not have been the type of person that he is what where would he have gone because how we've done it and by going, you know, like to the Be Sober meetups and surrounding ourselves with other so proudly sober people yeah. that don't necessarily go to AA, what would he have done there had he not? It wouldn't have worked for him, our method, would it? No. And it wouldn't work for lots of people I know. 
and and that's where the support groups are therapists you know be it AAR a counsellor it's so important that there's all these different channels available for the different types of people and what they identify with you know I know people who couldn't miss that daily or weekly meeting yeah you know because that's what keeps them on their path and their journey to through what they say is recovery i don't identify with recovery i'm not trying to pretend that i'm recovering because i feel really well <laughs> no, i do i feel the best i've felt in my life really there's something and and i'm not sure how many people will agree or disagree with this but i'm going to say it because somebody said it to me and i just thought oh my god that makes so much sense and from what i gather that when you do go to aa one of the things they say is that they are powerless against alcohol. Yeah. And from my perspective and how I do it, or I think how we do it, yeah. is we kind of think we're very powerful for stopping alcohol. Yeah. Does that make sense? Is that just a different perspective? I is that just a is. different way of looking at it? Is I it like the glass is half full, the glass is half empty? I don't know. No, I, I, I read. You see, this is, what's so, oh, and this is what's so interesting, isn't it? We have different views on even things we write sometimes. But yeah. I, I see powerless over, over alcohol to actually mean I'm surrendering myself to the journey of recovery. Yeah. So what I'm saying is here that alcohol has taken hold of me to the point where I can no longer control it. Yeah. That's how I see it. So do you think... What our journey is kind of nipping it in the bud before it gets to that point. Yeah, and I think there's a scale. So like I said a minute ago... I love you and your scale. This is a science This teacher. is a science <laughs> You're either a non-drinker or you're the stereotypical alcoholic. Yeah. Or, or, you know, or you, unfortunately, you're, you know, close to death, which we know happens. We've lost people in our families yeah. through it. Now, I just believe that along that journey there is a place for everybody and if you've left it and i'm going to say too late and i don't mean too late in the sense that there's no hope for you no. i mean you will need support you will need groups you will need therapy because that is the way that alcohol has taken you i believe everybody could get there everybody i just think we managed to take a hold of our alcohol problem or our problem with alcohol, depending on how you want to word it, before we got to that stage. But in honesty, Lisa, right, and, and sometimes we might look on our social media like we're finding this really easy. Now, I know through the things that I've been going through in my life for the last 18 months since my miscarriage, had I not taken the decision to stop when I did and turn it around when I did, I, honest to God, believe I would either be knee-deep in a bottle yeah. drinking daily drinking in the mornings i believe that i would have got there or that i would have stopped but i would have needed the support from a, a trained therapist or a group like aa i just think it depends on number one your personality yeah. and number two your journey and where you're at in that journey I, I don't think there's a right or wrong or a one size fits all on this no i i completely agree and i was very very much the same and i know we spoke about this earlier when my decision to stop drinking came, I know when I've said this from a massive hangover, but at that time, I suppose, there was a lot going on in my family life, wasn't there? Yeah. And I was kind of going out at the weekend, using it as my time to go out and drink and not... Well, I was realising, I suppose, that Yeah, you knew. Yeah. I did know that things were going wrong. But I look back at that time now... And if I hadn't have stopped drinking when I did, I absolutely dread to think what would have what would have happened to me, to the kids, yeah. um, our home life, and not because I don't know. It's really hard to explain this. Yeah. And I don't think you have to explain it, you know what I mean? I just think your life, like mine, was taking a path that had it continued on that path would have gone a very different way than it is now. Absolutely. You know, and I think, and it was not all about alcohol because we say this as well, shit happens, doesn't it? Life happens and life is not easy. 
But if you continue to drink down that, that's when it gets shittier. And I think it's so easy to do either way, isn't it? Yeah. Like when all that was going on for me, I was literally at a crossroads of, I can carry on doing what I'm doing and trying to forget everything that's happening, or I can do something about it right now before it gets to that point. And if no, I hadn't have stopped when I did, like I just said, I just don't know what would have happened, but I've, I've been able to deal with everything so much better. And in the first six months of my sober journey, yeah. there was still so much going on. It was hard, still really, really now. hard. And I think what I chose to do in that time is look at, look at the positives. Like nobody would have known on my social media or unless they were really close to me yeah. how much w that was going on but that was my decision to start finding the positives of things to be grateful every day to do you know what I mean the way you dealt with your journey and I've got a lot of respect for anyone who is taking this journey whatever method they're taking and you know something else as well that that actually makes me quite sad now I talk about my dad quite a lot and he was an incredibly strong man, incredibly strong, 10 years without a single drink. And he did it on his own and he did it without any support from anybody. And when I say no support, he had the support of the family. But what I mean is we were all still drinking. At the beginning, we didn't do it around him, but there was still, you know, a lot of alcohol in his environment. His whole life had been about alcohol. Yeah. His job was about alcohol. He owned pubs, he sang on clubs. You know, he had to change everything absolutely everything and i just think sometimes people label or brand like you say oh i've stopped drinking why were you an alcoholic like or oh, why did you have a problem why does it have to get to that point why do we have to be asked those questions to not take a poisonous drug no is what i want to say i'm clearly not because i've managed to stop and you're still doing it <laughs> you know? that's the thing do you think that because when i when people used to tell me they'd stop drinking i used to have an interest in it before i would never ever have thought i had a problem at that time so i think i was one of them people yeah, if somebody yeah. had said I've stopped drinking, it's normal to be I'd like be like, that. "Why?" And it, and it's kind of that thing of, "Oh, how bad were you?" Because then you can judge yourself on that. So if they're saying, "Oh, I was drinking in the morning," you can go, "Oh, I'm alright then." And I'm it's fine. I just yeah, that's it's because what it is. it's because it's acceptable. And I think I say in when we speak to, um, in fact, I know I say when we speak to Lisa, um, if I'd have read her book as my first book, I'd have actually gone, "Oh, I want that bad." Yeah. You know, like, and that's what we do. We compare ourselves to other people. And actually, when you read Lisa Smith's book, it's not about how bad you were. It's a journey to yeah. her point of sobriety, which is absolutely incredible. I also just want to talk a little bit about that whole um, self-control thing, because a lot of people believe that you are an alcoholic or dependent on alcohol because you've got no self-control and that isn't true and something from Lisa's book got me thinking now Lisa talks about at the very beginning of her book well midway through her book about the fact that she used food to comfort her when things weren't going well yeah. and you hear that a lot from pe before people were drinking how they had another crutch something yeah. else now I'd forgotten about this but when I was about 14 before I'd kind of kicked into drinking I used to actually deliberately starve myself. I wasn't anorexic, I'm not pretending I was. But when things were going bad, I would deliberately not eat all day. And it wasn't even meant as self-harm. It was just something that I had control of for me. You know, my method of control, right, I can do this. I can make sure this doesn't happen to me. When I felt other things weren't in control. And I think that's why, for me, I was drinking as well. When things weren't going well, it's a way of controlling how you feel, controlling your emotion, controlling your, um, you know, the numbing of it. it it's, you've got to be incredibly self-controlled to keep pouring poison down your neck knowing it's harming you, haven't you? I totally agree, and that's just made me think, actually. It is a way of controlling things, because when I used to do it, obviously you start out drinking like it's fun with your mates and you're having a laugh and you're loosening up, that's what you think you're doing. Um, but when I used to drink, I started doing it when things were going bad. So it was a, oh, fuck it. So yeah. to me then, that drink meant I would change the way I was feeling. Yeah. Now, so I'd use it to go from, ah, everything's going wrong, to, right, I've got a drink, everything's all right. 
But it wasn't the drink that was making everything no. all right. That was me. It's the action saying, of you right, controlling that, it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've never even thought of it like that. I thought of it like that this morning. Honestly, on my way to your house, I was just thinking, you know what? Every drinker, ex-drinker, should mm. I say, not drinker, every ex-drinker I know so far is somebody who either has compulsions in other aspects of the life yeah. or somebody who is incredibly intelligent and self-controlled. Yeah. You know, it's it's not the stereotypical label that it's given where you're in a gutter with a brown paper bag and a bottle of vodka under your arm. It's not that. That's the end point of this whole downfall due to alcohol. And anybody could get there. Absolutely anybody. Anybody could get there. That's not to say you will, because some people drink moderately and mindfully and, and know it's addictive and think, right, I'm not going to have Monty. But that's I'm just, just gonna throw effort. I'm just gonna throw this in there. How do you do that? Like, I do, I'm not sure. There might be people listening that go, yeah, I'm a mindful drinker. And you know what? I don't want to think about it that much. Even though I think about being sober a lot because it's brought so much. But I don't want to think I'm just going to have two. I'm just going to have one. That's I don't want to go away. That, that battle in your mind of I'm just going to have two and then you finish your two and then you think, really, what, another one? But I'm not going to have another one because I've told myself that I'm going to have two. How long can this go on for? Is that mindful? Is that somebody that doesn't have a problem? Or is that just somebody battling all the time? Is there anybody really that does that? I think... I think... I think I think I think I think no I think that um, there are people who can do it do you know anyone my nana used to do it and she'd have like one a year but that's probably (laughs) meant that she hadn't got to the stage of addiction because she had one a year you know what I mean yeah definitely so even though it was an an addictive substance do you not think they used to do that in the older days though well, I don't know. I think they, they were as the bad glasses as us, to be honest were small. Yeah. Well, you they, say were, that, they were but smaller. The, the glasses were tiny, so you'd yeah. get a bottle of wine for a Sunday dinner, and everybody would share that bottle of wine. Like you'd have a family of eight people, like yeah. sharing a little drop of wine, and that would be it. And somebody would giggle a little bit, and that'd be over. Yeah. Whereas now, like I, I used to do it myself. We'd go in a restaurant, say I was on white wine and my husband was on red wine. We'd go in and get two bottles, and I would definitely and a big glass, and that's what we had. But in the old days, they didn't really do that. They weren't all these big, massive, fancy glasses. While I'm on about glasses, though, um, my friend bought me a glass that was a bottle. So yeah, you could yeah. put a full bottle of yeah, wine. That's absolutely. the presents that I used to get off people and nobody thought I had a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't. They just didn't tell you. But I, I, no, I think you're right. The, the, the glasses have got bigger. The portion sizes have got bigger. And also, society's changed. You know, I clearly remember as you were living through and our parents lived through, you know, like the 60s where it was like an era of rebellion and being able to experiment. But then, I didn't remember the 60s, by the way. I wish but I then, <laughs> But in the 90s, there was the whole Ladette culture coming yeah. out. And, you know, that, that really gave women power to say, I will drink as much as you, pint for pint, and I'll match you. So although there was this aspect of feminism in it, it was also an aspect of destruction and it's only now you look back and see it. Yeah, definitely. So we've twaffled on there, haven't we? Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> should, we pa- should we pass them over to Lisa? Yeah, so she's absolutely lovely and this is her journey. Whether or not you want to describe it as recovery or journey to sobriety, but anyway, however, however you want to identify with it, she's amazing, so have a listen. Hi Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, I'm thrilled. No, absolutely honoured. I mean, we've been listening to your book on Audible. Um, We're both kind of Audible listeners as opposed to readers. We do read occasionally. Occasionally. Um, But yeah, it's just such an interesting journey that you went on. And am I right in saying that you're a lawyer? Yes. Yes, I am. you still do that? I actually don't practice anymore. And I now, um, I work with lawyers actually talking a lot. I do a lot of speaking about these issues for lawyers trying to raise awareness break stigma which is a big thing oh fantastic yeah i mean we we find and this is something that we do when we go out to workplaces is we talk about how um often the higher qualified you are the more professional your profession is the more risk there is oh gosh yeah yeah because the pressures are so intense um and i think when we 
are in high powered kind of careers, we gravitate towards them because we're perfectionists and we want to be driving, driving, driving. And that can be a really um, common factor in, in leading to substance abuse, for sure. Can you take us back to kind of your drinking days? And if you can, just talk us through, and the drug taking days, if you don't mind, um, just take us back to that, the point at which, and before you realize that, hang on a minute, this is an issue. Oh, sure. So, um, you know, really for me, it started, I think, the way it starts for a lot of, um, a lot of people, which is, you know, I kind of always felt awkward as a kid. I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I, I hear that a lot. And um, I was an anxious, gloomy kind of kid. And I talk, about, um, I talk about it in the book, but like the first substance that I gravitated to that I found relief from was food. And I find that that's actually pretty common. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I loved sugar. I would shove it down my throat. And I didn't know at that point that what I was getting was a dopamine hit to my brain that you know made me feel better from whatever this unknown sort of gloomy anxiety was that hung over me. Um, and then I grew up around alcohol, but only in a positive way. You know, my parents both had cocktail hour, you know, each night, and you know they stopped after one or two. They had parties, but I never saw people going off the chain. Like people were, you know, having fun for sure and drinking, but I didn't see arrests. I didn't see DUIs or people fighting or losing their job. Like I just saw people get happy, yeah. and um, so I was all in when you know uh, kids. By the time I was twelve or thirteen, started kind of you know stealing beers and whatever from their parents and going to drink in the woods, sign me up, you know, because <laughs> as soon as I drank alcohol, I was like, oh, okay, that's the thing I was looking for. You know, the chocolate and the sugar was great, but this is the real stuff. And so I kind of knew I, drink, I drank differently from other people fairly early on, but, um, you know, you find that you uh, sort of gravitate towards other people who drink similarly, or at least don't judge yeah. when you drink. Yeah. So I always say that alcoholism is not contagious, but it does run in packs, right? So we find our crew. That's how we became friends. <laughs> we friends. Right. That's how we stayed friends, definitely, because we would excuse each other and approve of each other. Right, right. That it's okay when you could call a friend and say, hey, how did I get home last night? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't remember either. Or who drove yeah. home last night? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, because I wasn't hanging out with you. You could hang out with me like if you weren't drinking, but you couldn't judge me. Or you couldn't <laughs> say, hey, hey, I think you've had enough or something like that. Forget it. <laughs> so I, you know, it took me longer, I think, than maybe some people to realize you know, how fully I drank differently because I surrounded myself with a lot of similar people. And I did well in school and I, you know, went on to college. I found people around me that, you know, same thing with, with drinking. And then I went on to law school and, um, you know, I, I, I really didn't find that I, I saw myself in trouble until after I started practicing law. So, you know, I know what I know now is that I have a genetic predisposition to addiction. My uh, grandfather on my mother's side died from it. And, you know, now later, and I learned in recovery that I actually learned in detox that I had an underlying mental health disorder, which was, you know, uh, major, I got diagnosed with major depressive disorder and also anxiety. And so I had those two factors. And then when I became a lawyer in New York and I was living on my own for the first time in Manhattan and I had this big job and there was all this stress and pressure, that's when like it became too much for me. I became a nightly drinker as a first year uh, lawyer, as a first year lawyer in the city. And I remember, you know, you go through all the justifications and all the denials. So it took me a little while because I would be like, yeah, okay, so now I'm drinking every night, but my parents drank every night and they had cocktail hour and I'm just having cocktail hour by myself because I'm not married, yeah. you know? 
that kind of thing. But um, I would set up all these tests for myself, right? Like, you know, to see if I could, you know, stop at two drinks or two glasses of wine and then I couldn't. And then I would say whatever. And then it, I kept doing these lines um, that I kept crossing. And I remember, it's funny that you say like, when did you know it was really a problem? The night that I really knew, I had gotten up in the morning and I had said, and at this point, I was like going to different liquor stores on the Upper East Side because I had to buy a bottle every night on my way home. And I didn't want the, the, the people in the liquor store to think I drank every night, which is ridiculous. Um, and so I remember saying, okay, I am not drinking tonight. And if I go to the liquor store and drink tonight, that means I'm an alcoholic and that's a problem. And this was probably in like that, in my third year of practice that I got to that point. And I remember that night standing in the liquor store, you know, picking out a bottle and going, okay, so this is it. This is what it's going to be. I'm an alcoholic, but I'm a high functioning alcoholic, yeah, yeah. which, you know, so I always knew. And that was when I started really with the hiding and hiding from my family and my friends and being secretive about my drinking. So once I crossed the line into being really secretive, that's when I was like, this is a problem, but I didn't get sober for another 10 years. Yeah, because at some point during that 10 years, obviously, you must have kind of, well, in your book, you actually say it at the beginning, you were drinking in the night, and then you started to take cocaine to counter the effects of the alcohol so you could get through the working day. Is that about right? Yeah, so what happened really was I went downhill from, from when I started, um, it took about 10 years to get all the way downhill. And by about um, that, by around that time, um, I, I had been, by then I had been drinking at lunch because I found people who drank at lunch. So I thought it was okay. Yeah. And, uh, but, and I say, well, at least I don't, you know, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, because at the beginning I was like, at least I'm not like a daytime drinker. At least I go to work. I don't drink. I drink when I get home at night. And then I started drinking at lunch and I was like, you know, it's really not that bad that I drink at lunch because people in France drink at lunch and Americans are just like really uptight about alcohol. And that's, you know, so that was my rationale going on in my head. And then um, what happened was it was about 18 months before I got sober. Um, you know, I was saying to myself, at least I don't drink in the morning. Those are the real alcoholics. And then I woke up one morning with like the worst hangover I had. I was so sick, my stomach, my head, like everything. I was sweating. And by that point, I was, I was, you know, really had a lot of physical symptoms too. And I had to go into work that day. I had to get there. And I knew that the only thing that was going to stop my headache and my tremors and all of that was a drink. And that's when I remember, you know, taking, and I totally remember taking that drink and thinking, okay, this is really bad territory. And I thought two things at that moment. I thought, one, but this is okay because I'll get this under control, right? We keep thinking, I'm going to get it under control. I'm just doing this today. This isn't going to be a thing. It's just today. And then the second thing I thought was, well, it's lunchtime in France, so I'm not really drinking alone, which yeah. like just is like, that's the encapsulation of the thinking. And then, of course, I, once I started drinking in the morning, I couldn't not. And that's when I really, I had been doing cocaine. I, I can't even say recreationally. I'd been doing cocaine a fair amount before then. But that's when I started doing it in the morning to counterbalance because I had a drink in the morning because I was so sick. So the cocaine I added to sort of straighten me out. And I think it's hard for people to understand that who haven't had that particular misery of dealing with alcohol and cocaine dependency together. Yeah. But, um, you know, I would have to drink to stop the shakes and the headache. And then, uh, but then I would get kind of tired and slurry and whatever, sort of, sort of counterbalance that I had the cocaine. So like, if you saw me at seven o'clock in the morning on those days before I had used anything, you'd be like, oh my God, there's a really sick person. But once I calibrated, once I had a couple of drinks with the cocaine and got straight, you'd be like, oh, that's, that's Lisa. There's a normal person. So did anybody notice Lisa? Did work colleagues pick up on this, your friends? So I had 
done a, a ton of isolating. And, um, you know, with work, there were a few things. Um, I, I was on the administrative side of the firm. I wasn't practicing with clients at that point, and, but I was doing business development, working directly with the partners. And I was able to work from home a lot. And that was a normal thing. So when I had to be in the office, I could really calibrate and get through to when I didn't have to be in the office. Um, And also there are things that are different, I think, about the legal profession. Like my office looked like a crime scene. It was a disaster. But there are a lot of lawyers with messy, disaster-looking offices. So nobody would think, oh, there's a person with with a substance use problem. Um, also, you know, I would fire off stuff in the middle of the night, uh, you know, work product and stuff. Everybody in big law firms, that's the norm. Like people would be like, you know, thanks for working so late on that last night, you know, stay <laughs> home today. So that's, you know, it, it's particular to certain industries. I think that, that it, it's harder to see. I don't know what was ever said behind my back, but the firm itself did not know. Um, I give them so much credit because after the book came out, they actually invited me and had me in to speak to all their lawyers and their staff, which was like the most terrifying talk I've ever given. But, um, but you know, it was, it was a really good thing. So that was work. And then with my family and my friends, you know, it was easy to isolate. By that point, we were, I was 38 when I got sober. So, you know, people, we'd get together for dinner and we drink at dinner, whatever. And then they go home to their kids or they go home, you know, whatever. And I, they didn't see me go home and pull out another bottle of wine and some Coke. Yeah. And with my family, if I just couldn't get there, you know, there's a scene in the book where I just couldn't get to a family, a big family event. And they didn't blink because for, I've been working in law firms for more than 10 years. And to yeah. be able to say, hey, I'm not going to make it because I have to work happened all the time. Yeah. So the one who knew was my friend who lived in the building who figured it out. Yeah. And your parents, because you describe, it's really emotional, actually, the way that you told your parents and you were quite scared. I think that's the right word. And yeah. it's a bit ashamed to tell them. Shamed, but, ashamed. Yeah. But they were so supportive. And that, yeah. how, was that general of your upbringing anyway? So there's no real reason that you should have gone that way. Yeah, I mean, what I, what I learned in, you know, because when you go through this horrible, you know, cycle, spiral downward of, of use, of drinking, of drug use, you know, we don't often talk about the fact that there is this parallel awful spiral you're going down of shame and fear and self-loathing. I had no self-esteem at the end. Um, And that prevented me from ever even considering telling anybody what I know now and what I hear from the law firm I was at, from my family, from my friends, you know, if I had just said, you know, more like, Hey, I need help. You know, they were there. Even when I said, I've been keeping this massive secret and basically living a lie to you for the last 10 years, they were like, how do we help? You know, what do we do to support you? Just thank God you're stopping. So yeah, I could have, I could have definitely reached out and I, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, I wish I had, and I hope that, you know, hopefully telling my story will help someone else reach out, you know, because sometimes people will say, well, I read your book and I realized like, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as you are. And I'm like, that's not the point. The point is like, maybe you see something of yourself in it. And you're able to say, hey, maybe I, you know, maybe I can reach out earlier and you don't have to hit that awful point. That is, um, you've just taken away a very uncomfortable moment for me because one of the things that I said to Lisa earlier, our Lisa, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I really want to say if I'd have read your book first on my journey, I might have gone, oh, I'm not that bad. But actually, when you start to get into your story, you realize that it isn't a story about how far down anyone's got. It it is just a a journey from addiction through recovery. And it doesn't matter what the addiction is. This is about your emotions. It's about your journey. It's about the support network you had and your experiences. So 
you know, if anyone is reading it and thinking that, get through chapter one and two, <laughs> and then you start to you start to relate really well to you. I think, and I can see elements of what you went through in what I went through, even though it's nothing the same, really. Right, right. We see commonality in each other's stories because there are so many common threads and things that we all experience when we're on that kind of, you know, uh, of a of a journey. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your um, your rehab slash uh, locked institution story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I had kept everything such a secret from everyone, um, except my friend in the building. And um, and then one morning, I it, it was like a Monday morning, like any other. I was going to work. I had calibrated myself with you know booze and coke. And I was, you know, dressed, makeup on, laptop in hand, the whole thing. And I went to go um, to the elevator and I just became like overwhelmed. And I thought, in that moment, I thought, I, I, I've killed myself. Either I'm having a heart attack or I've overdosed. Like one of these two things is happening. I now know that it was a panic attack. But um, in that moment, and it's, it's odd because, and I think, you know, a lot of people who go through long spirals, downward spirals of addiction have a lot of those mornings where you wake up and you go, oh, I wish I hadn't woken up today or oh, another day. How am I going to do this? Yeah. And I had those mornings, most mornings. And so it was looking back on it now, it's interesting to me that in that moment, when I actually finally thought I was about to die, something snapped in my head and was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, no, don't want to die today. You know, I kind of pictured my parents finding me in the hallway like that. Like I had this flash and I was like this, no. And I went back into my apartment and I, I had zero sober references. I knew no one sober. I knew nothing about recovery not in my family, not my friends. And um, I knew because of what I had been doing to myself that I, ne I would need a medicated, I knew I'd have to be hospitalized. I knew I couldn't just, you know, stop and try and go cold yeah. turkey because there's a real risk that your blood pressure spikes, you could have a heart attack, whatever it is. So I knew I had to go into a hospital for a medicated detox. And um, so I called my doctor. I didn't know where to go. I wanted to go where my insurance took. And somehow, for some reason, I thought I wanted to stay in Manhattan. And he didn't know, you know, we looked at where my insurance took and I took the place that sounded, that sounded okay, uh, that sounded good. And um, it turned out to be, um, he knew nothing. He was a gastroenterologist. So um, it turned out to be the worst uh, psych hospital in Manhattan and like the worst detox unit. In Manhattan, and no wonder they had a bed available, right? So um, <laughs> you actually thought it was the better of the bunch, though originally, didn't you? You actually thought yeah. it was going to be the best one. I was like, oh, this sounds nice. This is, you know, this is near like the I. It's on the Upper East Side. I used to live up there, you know. Um, and so I went, and I had to sign in for a. My friends came with me, and I had to sign in for a seventy-two hour psych hold in order to be treated. And um, I you know, they were like, my friends really were like, I'm not sure you want to stay here. Um, but I didn't realize how bad it was until I was already on the lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> so I went there and then I was like, oh my God, you know, it was like a co-ed floor, people screaming, people fighting, like, um, no locks on the doors, which makes sense for a detox unit because they have to have access. And I completely freaked out and you were threatened weren't you on your way down the corridor yes. <laughs> yes well I was like you know I, I think um there were a lot of uh it, it was just a very it was a very rough place um and you know I hadn't thought I was walking into a palace but I didn't think I was walking you know into into what I walked into and yeah this guy immediately was like I'm gonna fuck you up <laughs> and I was, that was like, that's it. Nope, not staying. But I, I couldn't get out that night. And then they accommodated me 
um, my, my screaming and yelling and, and me saying like, you know, I know my rights. I'm a lawyer. I, knew <laughs> I, I had no, I just signed my rights away, you know? Um, and so then, um, for, you know, they, they put me on a, on a less chaotic floor, um, which was, I'm very grateful to them for having done that. And, um, I was going to leave. I tried to sign my, you know, I wrote a note saying that I wanted to leave in the morning because they told me you can try and leave, but the psychiatrist isn't here to review it until the morning. So I did that. And then by the time the morning came, the, the withdrawal for me was so bad and painful. Like, like I say, it was like slamming my head on a bed of nails, like over and over. And I, I finally, I wouldn't let them give me any medication or take any blood the night I checked in because I was so scared. But finally, the next morning, like the pain of withdrawal outweighed my fear. And so I was like, give me the drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, so they gave, I went through. And then once I started the Librium and they told me I could stay on, on the floor where I felt safer, um, I just decided, let me just stay here and do this. Cause you know, I was just afraid I would not get, I knew when the day I checked in, like if I didn't do it that day, I was going to lose my nerve. And, um, I, I knew I was worried, you know, my parents somehow, and my brother wandered into this is a lockdown detox and they're standing in my room when I wake up. I'm like, who let you in here? How'd you do this? And they were like, let's get you out of here. We'll take, you know, this place is, you know, let's get you to a nicer place. And, and, but by then I was on the lib, on the Librium and I was like, let me just do this. I'm just going to stay here and, and get it done. And, you know, it was, it, frankly, for me, I mean, it was what it was supposed to be because I can still picture myself, you know, almost 16 years later, looking back really hard at that room on my way out and going, I'm not coming back here. I really, you know, this is what happens. <laughs> I had been convinced. So yeah, that was, that was scary. I think sometimes we need that, don't we? That yeah. The wake up. Yeah. Yeah. The wake up calm. Yeah. And it was, they were, and, and I have to say all credit to that place because, you know, the psychiatrist was in with me and he was like, no BS and, and interviewed me every day. Why do you drink the way you do? How do you feel? What is that? You know, really digging in. And, you know, at the end of it, he was like, listen, um, they wanted me to go to a 30 day, um, inpatient rehab somewhere, but I was so afraid. I I knew I would have to tell, I, I had told my office that I was out on a medical emergency that week I was out because I knew if I was out five days and just said, I'm sick, um, they couldn't ask me for details. But if I stayed out a sixth day, I would have to produce a doctor's yeah. note. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was like, you know, I had emailed them. The first thing I did when I decided to check in, it wasn't call my parents. It wasn't call my friends. It was, I emailed my office and it was a Monday morning. And I was like, listen, I had medical emergency over the weekend. I'm fine. I'm going to be okay, but I'm going to be in the hospital this week out of touch. Please don't worry about me. All good. See you next Monday. And then I, you know, when, when they tried, when the doctor tried to tell me the psychiatrist in the hospital, he's like, you need to go, you know, you, you just got physically cleaned out. Now you got to go get your head straight and you need to go to, to an inpatient. And I was like, absolutely not, because I'm not telling my law firm. And that's why I'm so, you know, committed to speaking about these issues and going into law firms and saying like, hey, this is what it looks like, you know, like it's, there's no shame in this and get the help you need. But um, he, I give him a ton of credit because he said after talking to me, he was like, listen, I think you are um, a smart woman with a very serious problem. And if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. You have crossed a line from where you could ever drink safely again. And that's how I think of it now today. Like I can't drink safely. That's how I view it. And, um, and he said, I think that you um, have been self-medicating. I think you have a major depressive disorder that you've been self-medicating um, probably since the time you were a kid with food and then moved on to drugs and alcohol. And that's gonna stop. So you no more drugs and alcohol to take care of the chemical imbalance in your brain. We're going to start you on antidepressants and you're going to take those instead. And, you know, 
you've got to work really hard to get sober and to find, you know, a program of recovery. Um, and I ended up, I, I did agree to go to an intensive outpatient rehab in the city two nights a week. And it was when I walked into those rooms, like with the rehab people, that was rehab. Um, and I walked in and I was like, oh, I'm home. Here are my people. You know, like I didn't know that people thought the way I did. You know, that's what we do when we isolate and we think we're the only ones and we think, you know, that, that we can't talk about, you know, how we feel and what our brain is saying. And so I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not the only one who like woke up in the morning and, you know, felt the way I felt or, you know, felt the shame I felt or any of those things. So um, that was what I did. And then I started going to 12 step also because that was recommended and that is you know some people that swear by it some people don't you know uh, to me uh, whatever works for somebody is great you know yeah, it's not for everyone and that's just fine for me you know i've um you know i got sober six almost 16 years ago and now you know there wasn't this kind of community you know that I'm so grateful is here now. Um, but it was really, um, it was 12 step for I don't know what. And uh, and now it just, uh, I, I think it's great. But I stick with 12 step because I'm just not messing with what has happened yeah. here. And like you've just said, 16 years ago, um, it's around about probably, I think my dad stopped drinking 20 years ago. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us um, as of 10 years, but he, he was, 10 years sober and he had nobody nobody supported right. him. I mean he had the family obviously on side but there was nobody in his circle who could support him and he did it so I I really admire wow. your determination through what you've done because it's a very similar kind of yeah. journey. I, mean, I know you had your friends and your friends were there from the beginning weren't they yeah. really? and your parents to do what you've done on your own and you didn't go into the 30 day and you said right I've got to do this and I'm still going to function so you said you were a functioning alcoholic well you were also a functioning recoverer <laughs> right <laughs> yeah <laughs> I believe yeah. well the community now you know there's quite a large sober community and there's all different ways but I do believe it's because of people like you that no. you know, you've made it like that if it wasn't for people that come out and tell the story then we'd never know you know we wouldn't be able to read these books and be like oh thank goodness we're not uh -huh. on our own no, it's um, and oh, it is very kind. that's yeah. so kind thank you thank you how, how long after um getting sober did you actually write the book oh my gosh so what happened was i got out of the detox and i I started waking up in the mornings and it would be like early and I would be, I would wake up and I would be like, I would it would take me a second to remember that I hadn't drank the night before. And I'd yeah. be like, Oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, like, like every day was a victory. I'm like, I've been drinking 10 days, you know, oh, which was yeah. incredible. There was a guy in my uh, outpatient in my rehab and he was a day ahead of me. We used to mark our clean and sober days when we signed in. And every day, like I remember writing down 10 and then saw him write 11 and I would be like, 11, 11 days. He is so much wiser than I am. He's <laughs> so much more sober. Because it is like that. It was for me at the beginning. It wasn't like, oh, no big deal. It was like, okay, this is a big deal. And so I was very excited when I would wake up in the morning. And um, the story in the detox was so, you know, kind of bizarre something in yeah, me really like, I have to memorialize this and it was and I always liked writing a lot of lawyers like writing and it was there was something and that's why there's so many details in about the detox because I, I started writing it down like right away in those mornings because I didn't want to forget yeah. and I had so many friends and family um being like wait, what happened? Why, what, whatever. And so I just started writing in the mornings and I would hand it to them, be like, here, look, this is what happened. This is what the detail, what was the five days in the hospital? Here you go, read it. Um, and I found that, so I started writing right away and I found it really cathartic. Like I, yeah. because I, first I started with that and then I started getting into like, 
why am I in a detox? What was going on? And that was, so it was over the course of 10 years in the mornings before work that I wrote the book. So um, it was my my 5 a.m., you know, ritual. And it was my favorite hour of the day because it helped me process everything. And then I started going to workshops and I, I, you know, really started to take seriously, like maybe I can make this a book. Um, but it was 10 years of writing and, um, you know, because I, you know, I loved it. And I was like, I just remembered myself sitting on the floor of my apartment you know, trying to read something about how people stop drinking and with a glass of wine in my hand and the bottle next to me and feeling so alone. And I was like, I wish I knew, you know, what I know now to tell that woman who is no doubt sitting on her floor tonight. And I kept thinking of that, like there's somebody out there who is in my place right now where I used to be. And I want that person to know that it can end and it can end in, in, you know, in a positive way. So yeah, so it was it was really therapy, and a lot of people I think in recovery pick up some sort of hobby. A lot of some people go like nuts at the gym. They start triathlons. People do gardening. People do all kinds of other things. People start families, and there are all kinds of things that we can do, and we learn we can do. And I had always loved books, and I read was reading every recovery memoir out there, and I was like, you know, I've always wanted to write, and so I started writing. It's amazing what can happen. You know, like I always say, like, I was like the kind of, the kind of drunk who would sit on a bar stool and be like, I'm going to write a book. (laughs) And then like, I got sober and I wrote a book, you know, it's amazing what you can do. It is amazing. I'm, I'm a lot like my drunk self, I think. I am, you know, I used to be kind of in, um, up at 2, 3 a.m. the life and so you only live once you can only do it now you know like and I found the more sober I am I'm actually at really like that but at more reasonable times now <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's it's true yeah totally all, all this time don't we like you said people take up all these hobbies so yeah all this time so what else it's why we started the sober experiment is because Lisa got sober first, I got sober next, and then we were chatting, and now we've got a podcast, we've got a group, we go to right. workplaces, and she'll phone me up at ridiculous o'clock, I'm just heading off to bed at quarter to twelve, and I've got an idea, I'm like, no, save it for tomorrow, and she's like, no, I'm now, and the pen's out, and we're writing these ideas down. That's so great, see, people think, and I know I thought, I was like, well, what if, if I quit drinking, what am I going to do, life is going to yeah. be so boring, I'll never have fun again. Like, I had no idea what I would do, and neither did you, you know? Like, look at what you're doing. It's amazing. We hear that a lot, don't we? The one thing that people, boredom, do get boredom. Especially at the beginning, I'm bored, I don't know what to do with my time. And that's why we drink a lot of the time, is to crush the boredom. Yeah, yeah, you know, but, but like, it does, life gets so much bigger. Yeah, it really now, It's like there's not enough hours in the day now, you know? I know, and that we find the same, don't we? That no matter how much work we're doing in the day or on the evenings or in the middle of the night on this, there's yeah. always more to do. And yeah. it, instead of it being a bind, it actually becomes pleasurable to live. It's amazing to me that there is something that I love doing when I get up. You know, I never thought that was possible, that I was going to be one of those people who got up and was like, looking forward to today. You yeah. Know? Oh, so you've obviously moved on since the since the writing, and you're. I, I think you're an activist. I'm not sure whether you'd agree with that. I would say you're an activist, but you're certainly a big advocate of sober living, and you try to promote that. Can you tell people who don't know about you where they can find you and what you're doing now, and just a little bit about what the future holds? Oh, sure. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah. So I recently talking about things that can happen in recovery. I I had stayed in my law firm job on the administrative side of the firm. I, um, most recently, I was the deputy executive director in management at a firm in New York, and um, which was incredibly supportive when I told them, like, guess what? I wrote this book and it's coming out. Um, and, uh, and I was, at the same time I was doing that, I was traveling around a lot to speak about these things at law firms and law schools and bar associations and other organizations, just like women's organizations, any kind of 
of thing. And um, it got to the point where I really realized this is what I want to do, where my, you know, I knew pretty quickly this is where my passion is, but I became ready to make the leap. So I left um, my firm at the end of the summer and I started um, my own advisory firm. It's um, in the website's Lisa Smith advisory with an O.com. And I'm working with different, all different kinds of organizations to break stigma and to talk about these things and to be an advocate. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take activists. I would totally go I'm for activists. Activist. Yeah. Um, she can be an activist. You're going to find about her parliament shortly. <laughs> yeah. I, right. It's on my so, bucket list. I've got to like chain myself to something yet. <laughs> you will. You will. <laughs> And so, um, so yeah, so it's great. Um, I, because I can do this from anywhere. My husband and I, uh, left New York city. And meanwhile, I married somebody who's never seen me drink, which is crazy. We, I was sober and, um, and moved to Southern California, which I never thought (laughs) I would do. And, um, and I'm doing this stuff from here and, you know, I feel just really fortunate. And I also feel like, and, and I'm guessing you guys um, can identify with this, but it's like, I trust that if I just stay sober and keep moving, you know, one foot in front of the other, the right thing is going to happen. Yeah. Like, yeah I don't absolutely. live in this fear anymore. Like I just keep doing the next right thing. So yeah. Lisa, on your recovery journey, did you come across any hurdles? Um, yeah. I mean, hurdles, it's, it's interesting. Her, one of my, um, one of my best friends, uh, died. Um, my friend Russell, who is in the book and, um, you know, that was about two years into my recovery. And that for me, like losing somebody in recovery, I still, I still kind of treat that as a hurdle because, you know, it wasn't like I was going to drink when that happened. Um, you kind, I kind of find that I'm, te- I'm more tempted to drink when things are good. Like, yeah. hey, I deserve it or something. <laughs> if I'm going to get a drink signal, that's when I get it. You know, when Russell died, it was, it was more about service, about how can I help. Um, but I still struggle with coming to acceptance of the fact that, you know, he's gone. Um, that has been something that I, that I really have grappled with. Um, and you know, I think there are hurdles whenever, um, something is new, you know, moving across the country has been a hurdle of like, okay, how am I, and, and I find that a lot of the sober journey is about sort of planning it out. Like before I got here, I connected with a lot of women in Southern California through social media, like, Hey, let's get to, you know, I tried to address what I knew was coming, which was going to be, you know, there's that in my head, I'm thinking, you know, the thought crosses my mind, although I don't act on it of like, "Hmm, nobody in California knows me. I could walk into a bar and order a drink, you know, Mm -hmm. like, how am I going to protect myself against that? There's a lot of, um, you know, I think kind of the daily hurdles are, can be, can be really similar but at least now I feel like I have tools. I have a way to deal with it. You know, when my dad got sick, um, he, uh, he, he died six years ago. Um, he had pancreatic cancer and it was like five weeks from diagnosis to when he passed. And, but for him, that was the right thing. He was always afraid of lingering. Um, but being able to, you know, be sober and go there and be like, okay, I'm moving in. I'm, I'm blowing up the blow up mattress and sleeping on the floor. I'll be the one to give him the morphine. If you are afraid to mom, like all of that stuff, instead of going and sitting on a bar stool and being like, my dad is dying. You know what I mean? Like there's, um, you know, we just, I just had tools of like, okay, what's the next thing to do? And that's, you know, help, help him help my mom, whatever it was. Um, so those are definitely anything new is a hurdle. Anything sad is a hurdle. Um, but I feel like there's no hurdle we can't, we can't get past. And it gets a lot easier, doesn't it? I suppose as time. Yeah. It becomes an automatic way of thinking. Yeah. I know when I've suffered, um, suffered loss, my dad passed away really early on into 
um, my sober journey. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I won't drink. And I knew that would be a trigger, but I knew I didn't want to drink as well. So it was kind of nice to be present and be there for other people as well. So, and I yeah. get what you're saying with the when happy things, you know, when we did an event the other week. Yeah. And we kind of high-fived each other and give each other a hug, didn't we, which yeah. we don't do often. Um, but we sat in the car and I was like, this would be a time where we would definitely yes. go out and get a drink. So, yeah, so I felt that trigger then, like I'm at 18 months now, and I thought, oh, I've not Congratulations. felt that for ages that we would definitely have gone out and yeah, we would have drank at that point. But it does yes. make you, sobriety makes you a lot less selfish and I never really I don't think I've ever been a selfish person but I was much more selfish than I am sober because you just don't sacrifice your time you don't go and visit the same people you should visit you don't kind of think about what other people might feel or anything oh yeah and that's something I really found is once I'd stopped drinking I, I was doing things for other people and considering their needs and their feelings yes yeah. and that is like I have um my my 12 step sponsor will always say to me when i'm you know stewing on something you know go call a newcomer go reach out to somebody else get out of your own head because it's a bad neighborhood you know and i think when we were drinking i i know for me i always felt like this victim entitled to not care about anybody else or be there yeah. for anybody else if you had my life you'd drink too and you know that kind of thing and um i never if somebody would have said to me before like doing service or doing something for somebody else is going to really make you feel much better and really help you i'd have been like i know you're crazy mm -hmm. but it, it is it's like all of a sudden i stopped thinking about you know about me and start you know reaching out a hand and and thinking about somebody else and showing up and i, I never realized one, how little I showed up, and two, how much it actually means to other people when you show up. Yeah. Because I didn't want anyone showing up at my door, you know, please don't come in. There's a lot of drugs and alcohol in here, and, and I want to be alone with them. You know? but, but people, it is meaningful, and I was like, oh, it means a lot to my mom that I came out on Sunday and had breakfast. Imagine that, you know. I never thought about it that way. But now you've got the satisfaction of knowing that you're actually showing up for thousands because your book's there, you're there, and you're just a massive inspiration, Lisa. Um, oh, you're so kind. Thank we're you. We're so honoured to have been able to speak oh, to I'm you. Oh, I'm thrilled. I love what you guys are doing. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Funny. I would sort of when Alex said that because you emailed, I didn't you? And I was like, yes. <laughs> oh, I was so happy. No, this is great, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, so we really, really are truly honoured, and hopefully, we can get you back on again down the line. I'd love to. I would absolutely love to. It's been so much fun talking to you. Oh, Before you do go, um, and we ask this everybody, what would your top three tips well it doesn't have to be three one will do <laughs> anybody now in the early stages um i can do three for sure oh yeah, yeah. Ten. Connect. <laughs> don't do, connect nobody has to do this alone yeah. and people really do want to hear from you um one of the uh first things that i learned that really sticks with me is this acronym halt i don't know if you've heard that don't get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Because that's when you're at risk. I'm going to so use that now. Like I, when I would have to go to parties early or something like that, I would always think, well, I don't have to, you know, I, I can't eat because I got to go, you know, there'll be food at the party. I learned I'm really bad when I'm hungry and my, especially early, I'm at risk when I'm hungry. So I would eat whatever it was before I go. So I don't go to a stressful like situation where people are drinking without having eaten. Um, and the third thing is that I would say, no is a complete sentence. So, you know, if there are things that you don't think are gonna be helpful to you getting to bed that night sober, saying no, no thank you, no I can't, 
is all you need to do. You know, because at the end of the day, it's like first things first. As long as you're going to hit the pillow sober, it's okay. And, you know, you have to protect yourself in order to do that. That's amazing. The, I, what always sticks in my mind is when people say, nobody's ever woken up and wished that they drank the night before. Oh my God, I love that. I you know, know when I heard guy. that, the amount of times I've told myself that and other people, yeah. because I just think nobody ever has, I think not one person. <laughs> I always say that you will never wake up in the morning regretting not having drank the night before. It's so true. It's such a good story and it's such a, and I love the fact it's a true story. It's a true oh, story. It's somebody so who's gone from being what I would consider probably your rock bottom and you're just doing so well and it's so lovely. And thank you. Thank you. I've for been, I, I feel like I got very fortunate in my recovery and I feel like that is a huge part of why, I, it's a huge part of why I feel like it's so important for me to be spreading the message, you know, that it's, so, you know, no shame and you can get sober and it gets better. I think that's it. The shame is hard, that, isn't it? I think it's changing now, but there is still such a stigma about it. And I think that's why we're quite proud, aren't we, to go around and say, yeah, yeah we're sober, we're proud. It's a good thing. Life's amazing. It can be amazing. Right. Right. And you're not alone. That, that yeah. You think about, like, when you're in it, like, you feel so alone, you know? It was like when I found um, the sober community, you know, through even Instagram and Facebook mm -hmm. and odd, it's like walking through this really dark door and then all of a sudden there's like a oh, whole yeah. family of people there waiting to you kind of go, there, yeah, you didn't even know they were there and they're all there to kind of go, we've got you and it's just so amazing and yeah. I know I keep saying it, but thank you and thank you for writing. Oh, thank you both. Thank you both. Yeah, I'm, I'm down whenever you want to do it again. Oh, I'd love to be back on again, yeah, definitely. And, and hopefully okay. we, we'll have moved on with what we're doing as well, so we might be able to share a little bit more about the workplaces with you. Thank you again so much, and we'll stay in touch. Oh, thank you. See you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.